Lord, how enriching it has been to be in worship with your people already in the sung and written word. We draw great encouragement from your truth. We ask now as we open your word that you would give us grace and understanding, that you would help us in not only being attentive unto, but in practicing that which you lay before us. Forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness and block out anything that might encumber an attentive heart to the words that we will consider. And bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you today, and I would direct your attention to Psalm 18. Now, before you start pressing the panic button and you realize that there are 50 verses and you're thinking to yourself, oh dear, given the way in which Jared handles the scriptures, how on earth is he going to do what he normally does with Psalm 18, being that it's 50 verses? And to set your mind at ease, the short answer is, I I won't. We're going to fly more at 3,000 feet today, but I do believe that this psalm, as with any other unit in Scripture, should be dealt with at once. It hangs together as one, therefore we should look at it that way. That's one of the most challenging parts of expositional preaching, is knowing where to break. That's difficult, particularly in the New Testament, for example, with Paul's epistles. Those letters, as you know, were read in one hearing. And so when we preachers chop them up over a year's time and preach 47 sermons out of Philippians or Colossians or what have you, there is a sense in which we run the risk of not only missing the forest for the trees, but missing the forest for the leaves. Uh, We tend to almost break down too much so that we miss the bigger picture. So I'm trusting that uh, today, as we fly over, that we'll get something of the major themes of the psalm. It is the lengthiest, as well as having the lengthiest title over it, as you will notice. But I do want to read it in its entirety. So now let's give attention to God's holy and inerrant word, Psalm 18. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song, to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, he said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils." He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. 
The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me and His statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before Him and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has renewed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in His sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you show yourself pure. And with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but He did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind and cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David, and his offspring forever. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to the preaching of it. One of the reasons that I requested that we sing right before the sermon, hymn 621, William Cooper's great 1779 hymn, Sometimes a Light Surprises, is because not only is it an old favorite of mine, but I think the contents of it in many respects parallel the spirit of intent that we find in Psalm 18. Now, William Cooper, I'm sure, never went through anything like King David did in terms of violence and physical battles and the onslaughts of enemies and the like. But he was a very troubled and distraught man. It is believed that on at least one occasion he attempted to take his own life. And so I think in... In any sinner's heart, as we examine ourselves, whatever the circumstances may be, in that desperation, we will find commonality. And the saints of God over the years have exhibited the hope they have in God in different words, but in similar ways and expressions in their writings and in the, the great hymns of the church. And that is certainly the case in the Psalter. David here is looking back, I'll suggest to you, and finding the Lord's rising with what Cooper calls hearing, healing in his wings for his servant. That in all of the difficulties of life, 
And in all of the stress and anxiety and fear and uncertainty about what's around the corner, that the Lord visits His people in song, and He, as Cooper suggests, surprises them in a very real way and brings them out of the doldrums and the sense of despair and gives them strength and security again. He recalls what His God does in this hymn, and David here notes what God has done and will do in the future with regard to deliverance, but particularly and most certainly in the keynote verse I would suggest to you is the last, verse 50. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring. That this is reflective, yes, on the power of God, but it's anticipatory and it functions in expectation of what God will do. And what will God do? In summary, He will do this. The God who says that He will be as a father to David and will make David as a son to him is the one who will cause that relationship to come in greater succession in the Lord Jesus Christ as the ultimate representative of God's people, as the final deliverer. David wouldn't live to see that day, but he knew that it was coming, and he looks forward to it, and thereby he finds deliverance for his soul. Now, the heading, as we've already noted, is very specific. David is looking back over his life and is celebrating in this worship song Deliverance from the hand of all of his enemies, but specifically from the hand of Saul. Now, you know, the, roughly the second half of 1 Samuel is taken up with the hunting and haunting that Saul inflicts upon the life of David. It's a difficult time, and we read that, and it's harrowing to us, and it causes us to sweat and to think, my goodness, what must David have thought or felt at this particular juncture as we read through that? But God is victorious on behalf of the king with whom he has a covenant relationship. Saul, God's anointed before him, falls on his own sword and no destruction. But David, because of God's covenant promise in 2 Samuel 7, particularly verses 12 through 16, he can celebrate deliverance and he can look forward to what is going to happen. Now, I've titled uh, the sermon today I have in the bulletin put the words the Lord rising with healing for his servants because we should take that in the plural yes this is one servant King David writing uh, but this psalm is here for corporate use I say that because from your studies of the Old Testament you know that this song also appears in 2nd Samuel chapter 22 verses 1 through 51 and it's it's virtually the same it's a little bit different now because this is written for song as opposed to uh, back in the, uh, second, the 22nd chapter of 2 Samuel. The structure there is literarily a little bit different because David was thinking at the time and intending that that be heard and read as his personal testimony. Um, but things grammatically are a little bit different in Psalm 18 simply because they have been adjusted to fit singing. So we have the servant of God's testimony in 2 Samuel 22, and here we have a hymn, if you will, that has been revised and has made the cut for Israel's hymnal. It's included in here so that all who would ever serve Yahweh would be able to sing of David's victory and themselves find restoration and confirmation and strength and establishment in their own souls because they see something of the greatness of God. And what a great song it is. Can you imagine Israelite prayer meetings and someone just chomping at the bit as we often do in our prayer meetings, oh, let's sing number 18, how great it is, how long it is, how extensive it tells of our God's greatness, what He has done, and all that He will do ultimately for His people. You know, that's what He is working toward. Now, this is a, 
a praise song, much like the two we cited last week in Exodus 15 or Deuteronomy 32. We have others, Judges chapter 5, Deborah's great victory song, the victory that she had in battle with Barak. We come into the New Testament and we see what we identify as hymns. Uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. The introductory verses of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25. There are a whole range of writings that are songs, but this one has been brought into the collective of those songs. The musical anthology, if you will, and so it's special. And I divide it for our purposes today into four parts. This is my outline First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we have a celebration of God's multiple wonders. Secondly, in verses 4 through 19, we have a commemoration of God's memorable ways. Thirdly, in verses 20 through 29, we have an acknowledgement of David's mature walk. And finally, in verses 30 through 50, which is roughly the latter 40% of the psalm, we have an identification of God's master work. So it's the multiple wonders of God, the memorable ways of God, the mature walk of the king, and the master work of his God. In the first verse, he begins using a word we translate love, the macham, the only time it's used in all of the Old Testament. Now that makes it special. And it's the most intimate expressions of affinity or love. It's deep. It's the idea of cherishing. It's often the word that was used in Hebrew culture of those who would express love for others with whom they shared a womb, like sibling love. Almost an Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament phileo, a brotherly love, a deep and abiding love. And then he gives eight titles to his God in verses 1 through 3. And there are eight mys. So every one of those titles with which and by which he describes God, he claims them as personal. And in so doing, he is revealing in these titles the multiple, the countless, the innumerable wondrous actions that his God has taken on his behalf. We see as we begin to read there, David identifying God as his strong helper, his rock, secondly. Thirdly, a fortress or a cliff, the idea of being up on, up on something high but away from the edge and safe. Deliverer, uh, the fifth title is rock, again, but it's a different word translated rock. It's an older, more general term connoting redemption and provision. Sixthly, we have the shield, the horn and the stronghold. The horn is blown in battle and is indicative of power. Once again, this is the only time that term horn, like the term love, is used as a title for God. Shield is the language we find in Genesis 15.1 in reference to Abraham. David realizes that God should be praised because he can and does save, and he does so in wondrous ways, mighty ways. When you think of the horn being blown as indicative of power in battle, David is contemplating how it is that God has been, for example, his horn, the one who has blown forth with power and has delivered him from all his enemies. And thinking of how God can be depended upon, His rock, His stronghold, His safety, His place whereby there is refuge from His enemies. And what David very simply is modeling for us here is how it is that we ought to count our blessings and name them one by one. We ought to see everything that God does for us as no less than wondrous, stemming from His incomparable power and His singular capacity to save. 
to realize somehow in taking the time to flesh out all that God is to David to see that God is so much more than we think that he is. He could have just identified him as strength or rock or fortress or any of these things, but he he piles it all on in order that we might not miss anything and that we may be delivered from our distresses as he rescues us from, from really having what amounts to, in our mind's eye, a small God and to have a big, enormous God that eclipses all and in which our anxieties and fears and griefs and pains can be lost forever. God is so much more Michael Starr was the director of the United Way in New Orleans in the 1980s, and they decided that they wanted to have the sportscaster Howard Cosell come to be the keynote speaker at one of their events. Mr. Cosell agreed to do so only after they agreed to purchase 10,000 copies of his latest book. Michael Starr was driving Howard back to the airport, trying to make small talk, which apparently was difficult with Howard Cosell, And having read his book, he turns to him and he says, So, Mr. Cosell, you're so much more than just a sportscaster. He's an attorney. He had had certain business ventures and the like. You're so much more than just a sportscaster. And Howard Cosell, in all of his humility, responded, I most certainly am. Now, God has in him no sin nor guile nor imperfection. He is all of these things and is deserving of laud and praise without being culpable of conceit. But I think what David is driving at here by trotting out all of these titles for God is that those of us who lose sight of whom He really is in the day-to-day might see Yahweh, David's covenant God, and say, oh, you're so much more than such and such. I just thought this about you, but you're so much greater. Isn't the loss of the bigness of our God so often what leads to a lack of peace and a lack of comfort and surety of refuge? It may well be summed up by the Apostle Paul when he broke into doxology beginning in Ephesians 3.20 and says, Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all you're able to ask or think. Singing in which the Lord will rise and heal you is singing that is focused upon the excesses of your God. And we need to do that. Now, secondly, in verses 4 through 19, we have the commemoration of God's memorable ways. In verses 4 through 6, he he sort of sets up uh, what will be a rapid-fire release of very graphic, almost rated R for violence, descriptions of God's delivering power in verses 7 through 15. Uh, 7 through 15 contains language that is of a theophany which we know is an appearance of God or an observable manifestation by God of Himself under certain circumstances. We see this again throughout the Scriptures in places like Exodus 19 and 1 Kings 19. But he sets this up by using language similar to that of 1 Samuel 23 uh, when he told his dear friend Jonathan, David did, that he had but one step between him and death. Look at verses 4 and 5. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol or the grave or death have have trapped him, as it were. And all of those snares have come to him. They've confronted him. And then he uses personal language in verse 6. In my distress I called upon the Lord to my God, which is again indicative of the covenant relationship established between them. He cried to Him. He cried to the temple. We first saw the the temple language in Psalm 11.4. This is an indication of the presence of God, what we might term the gateway to heaven, where people met with God and knew that they were heard by Him. And he's confident that all of the cries reached to his ears. And then he comes into this language that is very strong. Eye-popping. Notice this. 
the earth reeling and rocking. I'm sure you took note of it moments ago when I read it. The foundation of mountains trembling. How can that happen? Quaking because God is angry. Smoke from his nostrils. Flames from his mouth. Him bending the heavens and coming down like a big ark. And thick darkness being under his feet. Flying on a cherub making darkness his covering, a canopy around him as if it's nothing for him. Thick clouds, dark water, brightness, hailstones, coals, thunder, hailstones, coals again, lightning, arrows, all of this stark language that would see or create in us a vision of great surprise. The foundations of the world were laid bare under the channels of the sea. And once again, he refers to the nostrils and the blast of the breath of his God. Why why all of this? Well, because he wants us to remember. He doesn't want us to forget. We're prone to forget. Ten days from now is the 18th anniversary of 9-11. What has the motto been since then? We will never forget. But we do forget. We don't remember Pearl Harbor every day. We don't remember the space shuttle Challenger explosion every day. We don't remember the assassinated presidents every day. The fact is, we do forget. And what can David do to impress a memorability upon the ways of his God so that his people throughout the ages, until God has completed his covenant work, will sit up, take notice, and be wowed, as we Americans say, be blown away by the ways of our God. Well, the theophany ends in verse 16, and then verses 16 through 19 are kind of more, for want of a better phrase, historical and systematic theology. He goes from all this drama and a rating of R for violence back to a a rating more of PG. It's general. Notice this. He sent me from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. That's suitable for any audience, is it not? Notice what he's doing there. This is another time that we find a rare usage of a Hebrew word, the masa, to draw out of the water. The other place that we find it is Exodus 2.10. And you remember the story when Pharaoh's daughter took Moses, who had been placed in a basket in reeds on the banks of the Nile. He drew out masa, Moses. That's the name she gave him. Drawn out of water. Had that not happened, God's covenant plan right there would have been cut off. But in order to preserve Moses for his mediatorial work with the people of God, he's drawn out. And notice David is professing here, that happened to me too. And it's plural, out of many waters. I've been masad many times. God has come to the banks of the Nile for me and taken me out of multiple baskets. Why? In order that I might complete the work that He has for me and point to the One coming after me who is greater. And you love the way he historically deals with this. Some scholars have noted that any of this language in verses 7-15 through 15 could have been applied, for example, to Baal. You know, Baal worshippers, they thought that he could do these kinds of things. The only difference was God had a track record. You could go into the past and look at history and see that these things had really happened. Again, we would have to make our way through the book of Exodus to see the principal examples of that. But that's what he's noted, noting here in historical form in verses 16 through 19. The rescuing from those who hated, those who were too mighty, those whom God... David could not handle on his own. Those who confronted him in the day of calamity are disastrous of disastrous and destructive proportions. The Lord supported. He brought into that broad place his servant and rescued me, he says. And I would suggest that verse 19b sets up a kind of inclusio that would be completed in verses 28 and 29 surrounding verses 20 through 27 in David's profession proper. He's very careful to give God the credit. He's the rescuer. He is the one who is delighted in Him, and it is because of His delight that salvation has come. And we know that to be true. 
As Dr. Derek Thomas says, God loves you because he loves you because he loves you. You cannot find in yourself any reason that God would deliver you. And, and David is acknowledging that here at the end of this commemoration of God's memorable ways. I'm thankful that he gives us that because otherwise I would forget and I might lapse into a kind of ho-hum, domesticated view of my God, but when I read about reeling and rocking and mountain foundations trembling and fire and coal and all of these things, I'll never forget. So thank God for these descriptions. Thank God for the things that are said to us that cause us to fear and to have a high view of him my dear father as well he will be 87 next saturday and the privilege a year ago of sitting with him and his older brother who's now 89 uh, both still quite sharp recalling stories from their childhood they have a younger sister my aunt mary tom who is now almost 83 and they were recalling the morning that my aunt was born. My Uncle Henry is five, my dad is three, and my aunt has been born in the house. And there's a midwife present, and the two boys decide they're going to try to sneak in and get a peek at their new sister. And the door is already somewhat ajar, and they begin to look in around the corner, and the midwife with my aunt just hours old on her knee is tending to her and she looks up and she sees the boys and she says to them you better get out of here before I cut your ears off and they ran like greased lightning as Jack Buck would say and my to hear my 88 year old uncle say I'll never forget that was quite something and when you read Psalms 7 through 15, it's there so that you will always remember those ways of God that are most memorable. Those things that we ought not to forget, but ought to be foremost in our minds all of the time. This is how strong David's deliverer is, and he's our deliverer too. Perhaps David sums it up best in another psalm, in Psalm 103, 2, where he declares, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. Well, thirdly, coming into the matter of David's mature walk, David is a veteran. In saving faith. I think that's safe to say by the grace of God. We know he's not perfect. We know he's quite sinful. He's never tried to hide that. Now, in verses 20 through 29, particularly verses 20 through 27, we find language similar to that of verses 3 through 5 in Psalm 17 last week. And if you didn't know any better, uh, you would begin to think that Somehow, in some way, David in verses 20 through 27 is wanting to stand upon his own spiritual laurels because of all the language that he uses there. I want to suggest to you very simply, and I think Elder Hudson's comments earlier in worship were very germane to this. What we have here is a record of the one who acknowledged precisely that he was a sinner that oftentimes in his life the enemy would no doubt have said to him, David, you're not okay with God. But these are expressions of the fact that true righteousness that can only come from God have been accounted to him. Uh, he, he's not holding out something that he doesn't have. We know David better than that. We've read Psalm 51. We know the angst that set in after his sins of adultery and murder. We know how miserable he was. And if we look at the language of the text, we learn a great deal. For example, if we look closely at verse 21b, when he says, I have not wickedly departed from my God. He's not saying he hasn't done anything wickedly. He says he hasn't departed from God, which means he's gone to God. 
uh, when you joined this church and you stood and made a credible profession of faith and you were asked the question, do you realize that you are without hope save in God's sovereign mercy? And you say, yes, that's precisely what you're declaring, that you haven't wickedly departed from God. You're coming to that God. You're running to that God because you know you need Him and He is your only hope. And His statutes, verse 22b, I did not put away from me. That's an expression of the love of the law of God. David is thankful that he has been redeemed and has been put on a new course and now has, by the ability that only God can give, the capacity to walk before God in obedience as He enables him. Verse 23a is particularly germane, and this is why the original language is so important. I was blameless before him. Most of us read that and we think that he's claiming sinlessness. This word translated blameless here actually means I was with him with all of my heart. Uh, That's maturity. That's being advanced in sanctification. To see your need of God is that great and to without qualm declare, I am with Him with all of my heart. In verse 25b, where he says, with the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. What he's saying is, with the one who is with you with all of his heart, you show yourself to be with him with all of yours. That's covenant language. That's Barit, that's to cut and to administer and to solidify and secure a relationship whereby you are bound together in a way that you can never be separated. And so this is what we have here with the one who is the king. He's not positing sinlessness. He's professing faith and he's giving us something of those elements. He's being honest about the good news that he enjoys because he has been honest about the bad news of the reality wherein he realizes he needs to be delivered. Now, now think of it in these terms. The Apostle Paul, he identified himself as the chief of sinners to Timothy. But he's the same one, probably between a year and two years later, who with great confidence says to to Timothy, that the time is drawing near and that he has what? He has finished the race. He has kept the faith. And now there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. He's not bragging. He's simply the chief of sinners realizing that God is true. God is faithful. And I will come forward and claim this as my own and lay the entirety of my being upon it. Peter, Peter who said to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, is the same Peter who in the face of the rich young ruler going off sadly because he's not willing to part with his goods and follow Jesus, says to Jesus, we left our homes to follow you. It's not bragging, it's just the reality. It's a sense of the profession of faith. We see this time and time and time again, and we needn't miss it. Because there's something important, there's substance in the utilization of these claims. I love the story of the maidservant who worked for a wealthy woman and would disregard the woman's directions to sweep under the doormat. And she was converted. She came to Christ at one point. This was in England years ago when Spurgeon was still around. And she applied for membership in Mr. Spurgeon's church. And Pastor Spurgeon asked her, why do you believe you're a Christian? I like that. That's a good point-blank starting place when you want to hear a testimony for membership. You know, not beating around the bush at all. Why do you think you're a Christian? And this woman, not knowing anything of doctrine or theology at this young point in her Christian life, but showing an influence of the truth as applied by the Holy Spirit, said to Spurgeon, because, sir, I now sweep under the doormat. I now do what I didn't do before, but I want to do it now because I'm renewed. Don't be too afraid of the eyes, my friends. State them in the confidence of God. Juxtapose who you are with who you were. 
recognize the incumbencies upon you of obedience that God will give you the grace to exhibit and move out in the confidence that what you will be doing is showing precisely the two-sided coin of Philippians 2.13. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing it is God who is at work within you to will and to do for His good pleasure. And that's why 19, verse 19b is so important. The delight of God. Verse 32. He's the one who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. Now finally we come to the identification of God's master work in verses 30 uh, through 50. And we may wonder what that is. We often think, do we not, about God's ultimate purpose in life? What's the long-range intent of God? Uh, what in all of creation and throughout all of providence is He intent upon doing? And very simply, and we know this, it's to establish for Himself a people. Uh, that David, as a king, is one who has reigned over people who are a microcosmic indication of how it is that God is going to gather from every tongue and tribe and nation people to serve in His kingdom over which the Lord Jesus will reign finally. I mentioned Second Samuel 7. I think it's appropriate uh, to read that covenant language. He says in verse 12, the Lord, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We know what that is when we come to Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And by the way, that refers to Psalm 2. Some of you were here way back a couple of years ago when we looked at Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9 are still thus far in the Psalter, probably the most pronounced messianic language. Or again, verse 5, he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. There we have the writer of the Hebrews making it clear that Jesus is David's successor in the line to the throne that will be established forever and ever. But David has taken part in that. And he, he recalls such in these verses. In verses 30 through 36, we have David's testimony of what God has done for him. In verses 37 through 42, we have David's profession of what God has done through him. And in verses 43 through 48, we have a profession of what God has done and will do beyond David. Again, as you peruse those verses, you see that very carefully. He notes the perfection of God and all that He does. He refers to Him as the rock. There's no one like For who is God but the Lord? There is none other. He has equipped me, verse 32. He's made His feet like the feet of a deer. He's given Him swiftness. He's trained His hands for war, verse 34. He's been His shield, verse 35. He's given Him a wide place for His steps under Him. And there's that language again that we noted last week in Psalm 17, like unto Psalm 121. My feet did not slip. My feet were not moved. God did all of that. Then He goes back to the first person beginning in verse 37. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I thrust them through, verse 38. I beat them fine as dust, verse 42. But you'll notice that even there he is acknowledging that the equipment, as it were, is from God. Verse 39, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You did it all. And then notice what he does beyond 
David. And this is very important. Verse 30, 43. You delivered me from strife with people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners, verse 44b, came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. He again in verse 46 pauses to give direct praise. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. And then in verses 47 and 48, there are these indicators again of other people coming in. He subdued peoples under me, rescuing him from his enemies and exalting him above those who rose against him. You see what's happening here? If you read 2 Samuel 8, you will see uh, the conquests, the military activities of King David. Taking that into everything, everything into account from back when the days when Saul was chasing him. Everything this man did seemed to boil down on some level to a fight or to a battle. But along the way, this one with whom God has entered into covenant began to subdue nations. He became the king over those whom he whipped, or more appropriately, whom God defeated through him such as the king two of Hamat, which we read in 2 Samuel 8, verses 9 and 10. You see what that points us to? The kingdom of God is being established, and what's happening as the battle is waged, strangers are coming in. You begin to hear Romans 15, 8 through 13 ringing in your ears. You begin to see walls coming down and Gentiles being brought in. This is God's ultimate purpose. And there is nothing that can be celebrated more pointedly than this. We too live in discouraging times. But we need to keep our eyes on that prize. Verse 49, for this I will praise you. That is, for all of these realities, I will laud you among all the nations and sing to your name because you bring Great salvation to me, but not only. And notice how in verse 50b, he refers to himself in the third person, to David. It's as if he's stepping outside and he's looking at it as an objective reality to the one you appointed and to his offspring, to his coming, who is much greater and who will ultimately cause the kingdom of this world to become the kingdom of his, our Lord Jesus Christ, upon whom, over which he will reign forever you see this language also in luke in luke chapter 1 the birth of jesus foretold we read in verse 32 that he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the lord god will give to him the throne of his father david and he will reign over the house of jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end and right there in luke 133 we find the contents of revelation 11 15. So when we sing Psalm 18 and see God's faithfulness to David and all the work that he's doing to establish for himself a people that will be his eternal kingdom, do we take joy and are we made to rise with healing and confirmation and establishment before our God, even in that same way that he anticipated seeing the face of God in the prayer of Psalm 17? Do we see in our everyday lives, how it is that we too are God's instrument to that end of one day the perfect King ruling over all, subduing all earthly kingdoms under His reign and taking glory in all of those that the Father has given to Him. I want to close you with something that I think is appropriate in our struggles in the evil world around us. The 17th century English bishop Edward Reynolds once wrote this, The enemies of Christ's kingdom conceive mischief, but they bring forth nothing but vanity. They conceive chaff and bring forth stubble. They imagine nothing but a vain thing. Their malice is but like the fighting of briars and the thorns with the fire, like the dashing of waves against a rock. 
like a madman shooting arrows against the sun, which at last return upon his own head, like the puffing of the fan against the corn, which driveth away nothing but the chaff, like the beating of the wind against the sail, or the foaming and raging of the waters against a mill by which the wisdom of the artificers are all ordered into useful and excellent ends. But surely when the Lord shall have accomplished His work on Mount Zion, when He shall by the adversary, as by a fan, have purged away the iniquity of Jacob and taken away sin, He will then return in peace and beauty unto His people again. Look on the preparation of some large building. In one place you shall see heaps of lime and mortar, in another piles of timber, everywhere rude and indigested materials and a tumultuous noise of axes and hammers. But at length the artificer sets everything in order and raiseth up a beautiful structure. Such is the proceeding of the Lord in the afflictions and the visitations of His people, though the enemy intend to ruin it. God intends only to repair it. And if you and I will grasp that and sing of the faithfulness of our covenant God, we will find healing and deliverance for our souls as we feast our eyes upon Him who, unlike David, is perfect and will subdue all nations under His feet and will begin His reign with the restoration of His servants, all of those who fear Him. May we pray. Oh, how much there is for us in these portions of Your Word, Lord, that we seldom contemplate. We ask that You would cause us to write such words upon our hearts that we might not forget them, that we may speak and sing them and employ them and know that by Your grace, like with David, You will deliver us from all our enemies. You will deliver us from those cresting waves of Satan that Edmund Clowney wrote about in that hymn we sung earlier. And it's all because of the work of the greater David. Thank you that he is perfect, that he does restrain and conquer all of his and our enemies. And he will be our cliff and refuge forever. Give us joy in that reality this day, I ask, on behalf of those of us who long to serve and please You for Jesus' sake. Amen.